Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Not that I'm one to quote Barry Maguire, and I know neither one of you know who Barry Maguire is. Danny might know, but his most famous song was The Eve of Destruction. And one has to wonder, given everything we've heard over the last week, are we on the eve of destruction? I know what your answer is, Danny Moses. Dan Nathan, thoughts on that before we get into things? Are you labeling us as the doom, gloom, and something podcast here, guy? I mean, listen, here's the thing. There are no victory laps here, but we've been talking about the absolute destruction in a large part of the market, and a large part of the market that retail investors are focused on. We've been doing that for months and months and months. And I think it's interesting that you suggest the eve of destruction, which might actually suggest, Guy, that it's the broader markets that we're literally focused on here because under the surface, there's just been so many ominous signs. I know Danny has never been more bearish. I think he made that proclamation months and months ago. But man, oh man, I mean, this market feels really sick right now. And it's only down 6%. That's the S&P and the NASDAQ's down 11% on the year. Yeah, listen, I'll add to that. I hope there's no war in Ukraine. But things were already getting bad as far as the U.S. stock market's concerned before troops started to line up at the border, right? So this is just a distraction to this market. It may be an excuse, but the realization is hopefully that thing subsides and calms down a bit. I don't think it will anytime soon. There'll be a certain level of stress, but it brings back in what we talked about months ago. Listen, I would love to be bullish on everything. I promise you I would. It sucks being bearish. It sucks betting the don't pass when everyone's on the pass. It sucks. I don't like it. However, China-Taiwan issue is going to rear its head again as soon as the Olympics are over. We know that. So you're going to have across the world issues. And we're in the middle of winter still. And so energy costs are higher. And yeah, oil may move 85 to 95 on geopolitical, this and the other, but it's going to remain elevated, I would think, for a while. So I just see all these things kind of together and people can be distracted by things that are happening around the world, but just bring it back to the US. I still think the market's in real trouble and it really has nothing to do with what's going on in Ukraine. Danny, I'm glad you made that point. As pundits, and Guy and I are obviously speaking on CNBC, we have our podcast, you join us on a lot of different stuff here. Sometimes we get desensitized to some of these things. We talk about Ukraine and the potential for Russia to invade. The last time Russia invaded Ukraine and they took over Crimea, 7,000 people died. And I think that we've gone through this two-year period with COVID where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have died, and we've kind of been desensitized to some of that stuff. So I think it's a really important point that you make. Nobody should be rooting for war here. We think about it through the lens of the stock market, but man, haven't we come far enough where we just don't need to see these sorts of things? And I'm just curious, Guy, because you've been talking a lot about these geopolitical issues over the last few months. And again, you're not rooting for anything like that, but it really is important to drill down how it impacts us over here. And I think that's where the really macro issues as it relates to rates, as it relates to commodities and that sort of thing, and supply chains, obviously. That's exactly right. And listen, I think Danny's right. None of us want to be, and I don't think we are always negative. By the way, later we're going to talk about some of the things that we are positive about. And if you haven't guessed already, you are in fact listening to On The Tape Podcast. That was Dan Nathan. I am Guy Adami. And earlier, earlier being a few minutes ago, you heard from Danny Moses. But to answer your question, you're 100% right. None of us are rooting for anything. 
But I think the three of us collectively find it almost our duty to point out things that are going on that nobody seems to want to talk about. The Russia-Ukraine situation we started talking about last summer, literally, Dan Nathan, as you know. And I've said for months now that the China-Taiwan situation will rear its ugly head after the Olympics. I will stand by that. In terms of how it impacts us, it's a number of different ways. The first and the obvious way, Danny Moses, is energy, something we've talked about. And by the way, we had Porter Collins and Vinnie Daniel on here a number of times in their investor letter. They talked about energy being a play that they've been involved in, they want to continue to be involved in. I agree. I think people are underestimating the impact on the global energy markets here. But are we rooting for this? Absolutely no. Are we trying to read the tea leaves Absolutely, yes. Here's the most interesting part. Find a time with this much geopolitical risk when the rates were at zero and the Fed was on a rate hike path. That's the problem. Normally, you would say to yourself, okay, rates are at 3%. Fed funds are 3%. If a conflict happens worldwide and things start to slow down, the Fed will cut rates. They'll do stuff to stimulate. That's not going to happen here. I'm not saying the government can't come up with other plans in Europe and the ECB can't do something separately, but that's the problem here. There is no cushion here for error. David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research, he's been on our podcast before. He tweeted out this earlier today, and I kind of tend to agree with it. I think it's hard to put out in such a matter-of-fact way, but he said that if Putin really wanted to invade, he would have done it already. He knows better than to blow up the Russian economy. Diplomacy will win out, and he's going to end up getting what he wants. Best not make investment decisions around this file. I thought that was an interesting take. I mean, obviously, none of us know whether he's going to invade or not. I'd like to think that diplomacy will win out. I'd like to see our government and the Western European governments get a bit of a win here. I think there probably are some concessions to make with Russia as it relates to their fear of Ukraine getting some sort of admittance or a path to joining NATO. Let's de-escalate this situation. We'll deal with that. We'll kick that can down the road a little bit. What are you supposed to do in a time like this? If you're a professional investor, you're paid to make investment decisions. You don't get a day off. You don't get an hour off. So how do you take advantage of things like this? What's changing in the macro? I'm looking at the article today in the Wall Street Journal about LNG. And what's happening now is the U.S. has become a net exporter of LNG to Europe. It's accelerating. I'm not saying that's good or bad politically. What I'm saying is, though, you got to own those names. And one of the things that Porter and Vinny have been harping on, they own energy stocks because the CapEx was so low and cash flows would look good. But this is one of these things that is a secular potential move right now that we become a net exporter of Europe that alleviates over time some of the issues that Russia poses into Europe with their higher natural gas prices. And if they lose a little bit of control, that's a positive for the world. So you want to get optimistic about something? Let's get some of Putin's power out of his own hands. And so those are things I like to see. And you can benefit in the stock market from it, guy. No question about it. And Chenier Energy, the symbol for Chenier, if you're playing our home game, is LNG. And you look at that stock as we're sitting here right now, that's trading at an all-time high. And that stock, I'll use the word, it's been parabolic over the last six months. But this started, by the way, long before anybody was even talking about Putin, Russia, Ukraine, and those types of things. So I just think Dan makes an excellent point. Diplomacy will win. I happen to agree with that. But I'll say this as well. You don't amass 125 to 150,000 troops on a border overnight, and you don't just tell them to go home. We were just kidding. So I do think something's going to happen. I will tell you, having lived through similar in 1991, where each night we had to be in the office because the world was told something was going to happen in the Middle East. I remember that the initial knee-jerk reaction for oil when those missiles were fired over Baghdad was a huge spike higher, I would say within six hours Oil was actually lower than when the entire thing started. And quite frankly, Dan, I think that's something we could see on the back of this. 
And I don't disagree. It would have been really nice if crude oil had kissed 100 already, because if we did have a major de-escalation, that might have done what it needed to do. We often say things that go to 90 and the markets go to 100, and therefore it could have pulled back a little bit. I think the trade is probably de-escalation and looking for stocks settle in a little bit. I think Danny makes a great point. There are going to be plenty of opportunities. We saw this in the trade war. We saw it with some of the things surrounding deglobalization over the last five years or so. There's going to be plenty of opportunities to play some of these trends. And if the timing so happens that winter's ending, the cold weather is abating over the next four to six weeks and the conflict de-escalates and you have an excuse to sell oil, obviously you could see it certainly spiral its way down to 70 to 75 bucks rather quickly. Stocks, they obviously would go down, but I don't think these energy stocks are pricing in a sustained elevation of oil prices. When I say sustained, I'm talking about the next four to six quarters of above $90 oil. And if we do slow down and oil is at this level, it's a tax on the consumer and it's self-fulfilling that things will slow down. If you start to see things trend down like we are a little bit on the consumer side, it'll become self-fulfilling that oil will go down just from a demand perspective. We spent the first 10 minutes now talking about geopolitical risks, which there are many, as we have pointed out numerous times over the last few months, but there are other risks as well. And I don't think you want to hear me rail against our Federal Reserve anymore. I think you pretty much all know where I stand there. But We have to bring it up because once again, they're in the news, Danny Moses, on the back of these Fed minutes, which I think people this week, at least in the short term, took as extraordinarily dovish. Why? Because I think what they were trying to say is, hey, listen, we're not on autopilot here in terms of rate hikes. We're going to be basically meeting to meeting specific. And for some reason, I don't understand it necessarily. The market took that as dovish. Thoughts on that, Danny? Well, you read the minutes. It couldn't get more hawkish than what the interpretation was coming out of that meeting. So unless they said in that Fed minute, we meant to raise rates today, but we forgot. We'll be back. at Literally, it was at that point. So now I'm watching Fed fund futures, and they're starting to pull in here in terms of the 50 basis point rate hike in March looks to be coming off of the table. That was like a 74% chance at some point last week. That's dropping. The 6 to 7 to 8 over the course of the year is dropping now back towards 6 a little bit. So it's starting to come in. I think the anticipation is the consumer confidence from last week, the things we're seeing are going to have a spillover effect into spending, into goods. Services are still being spent. This is over, right? In terms of Omicron and everything people can spend on services and things, but on goods, it looks like there's a little bit trepidation there and that will have a self-fulfilling effect on what the Fed may may do. And listen, they're going in March. They have to go. But then I think it's a question from there. It's data dependent. You got another six weeks after that. So let's see what happens. But I've been saying all along, I think you guys agree that seven or eight rate hikes, I just don't see happening. It'll slow the economy down too much. Well, the data is there. And listen, I know we have similar but different thoughts on this. To me, the data has been there for quite some time. And what I find really interesting, again, is people think the risk to the market is a Fed policy mistake, as if raising rates is a mistake. I think the Fed policy mistake has been made over the last decade, and actually now they're getting on the right course of action. And if the market's going to be collateral damage on the back of that, so be it. But the path we're on right now, given this Federal Reserve, the path they've been on prior to this, is unsustainable. And now at least they're getting some religion. I think that's a policy correct move, not a policy mistake, Dan Nathan. And so the mistake in times past over the last 10 years since the financial crisis is that they just kept rates too low for too long and they had investment bubbles or asset bubbles build and they fear of the popping of those sorts of things. And I guess this time around, the religion they got guy is thinking back to past periods where inflation, which is something like you've mentioned this on many occasions, careful what you wish for. 
prior to the pandemic, they were worried about deflation and the negative deflationary effects from some of these major technology companies. We're talking about things like UBI, universal basic income. Now, all we can talk about are wage increases and just the spiral effect that that's going to have on corporate margins. I'll just say this, and I've said it a lot of times on this podcast over the last few months or so, I was kind of in the camp where whatever you view the word transitory to mean, ultimately, we'll be looking back at some point, and that is what hindsight is, and we'll say we're going to be trending back towards those pre-pandemic levels of inflation, of growth, and all that sort of stuff. So right now, I feel like we're in the eye of the storm. But I probably could see CPI cut in half by the end of the year and GDP trending back towards that two, two and a half percent, which is what we averaged prior to the pandemic. I've been thinking about this a lot in the last week. This is a very serious podcast so far, so we're going to have to make it fun soon. But I really was thinking about this a lot. First of all, why the Fed has any credibility at all that they'll know when to stop raising and so forth. So I don't want to give them any type of credibility. But here's the thing. It's not a pass, but it's what I'm thinking about. We know the amount of money that was pumped into the system from the stimulus checks, from the Fed buying HYG and all those things that occurred and the PPP loans, which I think we don't talk about enough how much money was pumped into the system. Certainly, there was a percentage of those loans that were used not for what they were supposed to, and it just put money in the economy. I think when COVID hit and you had a supply chain issue start to occur because of the way that a supply chain is supposed to work. Forget about demand for a second. Breakdown in China because they closed certain ports. All these things that happened. But then all the money pouring in into the economy and into what people wanted. And then the hoarding. It was the perfect storm. Now, they had already flamed the fire for inflation. It was ready to go. This was the cherry on top. But I will say this. I'm not saying anything that people haven't thought of. But here's the thing. As those things alleviate over time, what happened was wage inflation got in the middle of all of this because people were sitting on the sidelines because they had the ability to not work or work from home and choose what they wanted to do and take a deep breath and change their lives. That is the one thing, this wage inflation, that I believe is the stickiest of all. And that's what we're seeing the most. And that either, again, hit your corporate margin or you pass it on in the form. And so either take a lower multiple or a lower earnings growth rate and absorb them or pass whatever you're making, what product that is on. So I know I threw a lot of stuff in there, but when you just think logically about the unwind and how this will occur, we will see inflation abate in a lot of different categories in the next six to nine months. I have no doubt, but I think there's a level that's going to stay with us, and that's going to be the thing. Danny, isn't this the one thing that we can all agree on, that we wanted higher minimum wages? And really, these wage increases are happening on a much lower level for the most part. I think if we get back to where we were as far as growth rates were concerned prior to the pandemic, but we have a much higher low end wage, I think a lot of people will be very happy about that. And a lot of companies in the private sector were already going in that direction. But on an apples to apples basis, the consumer is not going to be any better off if the inflation in the system is above what their wage inflation is going to be and their pricing power is not as good. So I'm not sure how this is going to all play out, but again, rates are still at zero. And so we haven't had to have a reckoning of what that really means. And we haven't even begun that yet. So that's the whole point of what I'm looking at. You're right. We should lighten it up. But there are obviously serious topics at hand. And I will be one to lighten up. Let me just say this quickly in terms of what Dan said. And Dan is spot on. Deflation has been a problem that the Fed has not been able to get their arms around literally for decades. That's not going away. Technology is the most deflationary force in the history of mankind. The problem is they didn't acknowledge that and they kept looking for inflation and was right there in front of them in all the wrong places. And in terms of wages, as we sit here right now with that CPI number that came out at 7.5%, that means real wages in this country are minus 
3%. So we have a long way to go before wages actually catch up. We'll just add to that problem. Now, let me say this about keeping things light, because that's what we like to do here. What has not been light is the elevation in the gold market. And as we sit here on this Thursday, Danny Moses, where did gold trade? Just help me out. I don't have it in front of me. I know Dan was sitting trying to short futures at eighteen ninety nine and 99 cents all night last night, but I think he ran out of ammunition. I think as we sit here right now, it's just above 1900, but the bet is over. It is done. I lost. You lost, but that's okay. I hope you own GLD calls right now to offset some of that, but I have a feeling from your action, you kind of... You know who owns? You own me. It's like you own the Chiefs, right, guy? Who owns the Chiefs? I don't know who owns the Chiefs. I'll tell you, we mentioned Leslie Gore, which she had two songs, You Don't Own Me being one of them, which is a great song, great commercial, by the way. But let me say this about owning something. Danny Moses owned the NFL for the entirety of the season into the playoffs, it's going to be very difficult for you to replicate what you just did. I would say it would be virtually impossible. So question to you, Danny, do you push the envelope as we get into March Madness or potentially the baseball season, or do you wait for the NFL season, or do you say, like James Conn did in the movie The Gambler, you just throw your hands up and say, that's it, I'm done. It can't get any better than hitting on 18 and getting a three. I think that I will have things from here and there, but there's a lot of pressure. People think, oh, it's fun. I would be concerned that I would give losing picks to people and they would be upset with me. And so it became part of this routine weekly. I've got to tell you, I'm actually relieved that it's over and this thing is done. However, when the March Madness does occur and I look at the board, I may say, take this team to make it to the Final Four. Take this team to make it. Sure, I could have stuff like that, but it is an ongoing basis. I mean, baseball's daily, basketball's every other day. The beauty of football is it's once a week. Welcome to Punditry. For 10 years, I did a show called Options Action on CNBC where I had to come up with a specific trade idea and a specific name. I had to pick a point in time, a price in which the stock would be above or below. This is what we do, buddy. This is the business that we've chosen. Is that show still on air? Yeah, it is. I mean, they dumped me a couple years ago, but I did it for 10 years. Danny, before we get, I want to say loose here for a second. I don't think we shared this with the on the tape audience, but you got a phone call on Super Bowl Sunday from the woman that drove you down this path, both figuratively and literally in terms of gambling. Enlighten us and share that story. My mother, Susan, who is an avid gambler, not out of control gambler, just from the entertainment perspective. He took me to Las Vegas. My parents did when I was seven years old. My sister and I threw us in the youth hotel with all the performers' kids. Three days later, they came back and picked us up. I would have a full beard if I was actually able to shave back then, if I actually had whiskers. That's how long they left us there. And a venereal disease. And a venereal disease. Anyway, so there's been a history of this. My first game on Atari was Casino with the roller thing. It wasn't Asteroids. I mean, so this goes way back, this stuff. Anyway, she calls me Sunday. It's snowing in New York. She says, I got these numbers in my head. I want to bet on something. I said, okay, what do you want? She goes, can you bet on something like 23 to 20 Rams? And I go, you can. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but you could do it. She goes, just do me a favor. Put $50 on that for me. I said, okay. So she Venmoses me the money, and I put the ticket on. I actually have the ticket. It was through my guy, so it wasn't DraftKings or something. And it paid 66 to 1. And so she went, I got to tell you, this is new information. She hits me last night. She goes, the name Matsuyama is in my head. I go, what? She goes, he's going to win this tournament, wherever this golf tournament this weekend. I'm like, why would you? She goes, I don't know. I got this Matsuyama in my head. Okay. So 50 bucks just went on Matsuyama at 25 to one. So we'll see what happens there. But anyway, she's always a good luck charm. We should get Mrs. Moses on this for sure. Let me ask you a question, Dan Nathan, since you mentioned venereal disease, and this is a bit off script, but earlier this week, Charlie Munger, 
who has got to be approaching 95 years old, if not older, actually equated cryptocurrencies with venereal disease. And that sent Twitter into a, what do they call it, a firestorm or tweet storm or something storm. I actually tweeted out, is the ultimate get off my lawn, dude. But Dan, you understand crypto, I think, better than Danny and myself. What do you think about something like that? They keep talking about this asset class. And when I say they, he and Buffett, and maybe they just get asked about it and they just don't really care about it, but they think it's just this financial evil. And I think it's also interesting that Warren Buffett famously, I think prior to the financial crisis, used to refer to options as weapons of mass destruction or financial destruction or something like that. And he's one of the biggest users of options. Danny, didn't they used to sell out of the money SPY and SPX puts all the time? During the financial crisis, it was rumored that, not even rumored, it may have been even shown that he was selling downside S&P puts, the 1,000 level, 900 level, 800 level. When that hit 666, rumors of a Buffett margin call were going around. And part of the conspiracy theory was that when he basically invested in Goldman, it was a quid pro quo for allowing that thing to work itself out over time. Now, listen, I have no proof of that. But back in the day, I do remember sitting on the desk and hearing all this. Everything was so crazy in real time. But yes, the answer is he's definitely sold downside puts. It's just odd that they feel the need to be so aggressive about it. Literally, Munger's 98 years old. I think Buffett's a couple years younger than them. They're like those two guys in the Muppets. Just seems very odd when you think about the whole entire asset class is under $2 trillion and the investable assets on this planet are hundreds of trillions of dollars, why they would even spend any time talking about it. I will add this though. Did you see this disclosure in the Berkshire 13F that they added a billion dollars worth of Activision stock a month before Microsoft made a $70 billion acquisition bid for that company? Hold on a second, Dan. Do they have a proprietary platform too? Just curious. They might have some sort of shit seeker or something like that. I just think that's really interesting because Buffett and Gates are really good buddies. You got to think Buffett got a little bit of the heads up on that one. I'm just saying, who knows? Hey, Dan, so because of you and OK Computer and the people that you brought on, and I really maintain an open mind in general in crypto, I really have. I'm not a bull. I try not to be a bear. We're going to talk about some of these stocks recently. We could talk about NVIDIA here because that's actually a good play off of Bitcoin and so forth. I think of these things now as just market cap companies. 800 billion Ethereum, 900 billion Bitcoin. Let people decide if they believe the applications exist or if this world can handle that, what that is. And I think that's the simplest, easiest way to approach it. Because here we are, we've been dealing with this now for a year. Companies of 200 million market cap, four, six, eight, have no right being where they are. But people decide that they want to buy it on something in the future. So anyway, I just simplify it like that. I think it's a really great point. You're obviously listening to OK Computer because when you look at Bitcoin, for instance, and you think, what are the applications? What are the future disruptions? Could it be viewed as Facebook when it had an $800 billion market cap, which is essentially what Bitcoin has right now? What is the total addressable market? What are the incumbents that they're going to displace? There's no cash flows and stuff like that. But I think that's a good way to look at it. And the other day, Rick Heitzman and I and OK Computer and Meltem actually were kicking around Twitter with a $30 billion market cap. That stock has gone nowhere. Nine years ago, it went public at $27. It's trading at $34.5. We talked about this a little bit last week on the pod. They announced a $2 billion accelerated buyback with the stock down 55, 60%. And we're like, can you think of all the other things that they might have been able to invest in with that $2 billion to accelerate that company's path to a billion users where they only have 200 million right now? And it's pretty ludicrous. And then if you go and you look at 30 billion, that's their market cap. And granted, they have five or $6 billion in cash. 
and you go over to coin market cap and you look at all of the different cryptos that are listed solana has a 30 billion dollar market cap so i ask you what would you rather buy right here solana where all these nfts and DeFi and a whole host of other protocols are going to be built on top of or twitter after everything we know about twitter over the last 10 years and the little that we know about solana over the last year and a half and to me it's an easy one it's solana Oh, I thought the third option was gold. Oh, there you go, buddy. And your point is you have $5,000 less to buy Solana. That's true. That's true. The Solana thing, it sounds like an exotic name to me. Like just on the name alone, I wouldn't buy it, but that's my personal gripe. It's as simple as this. The two developers who came up with it, they live in Solana Beach, north of San Diego. Solana. There you go. There you go. You see that? I mean, sometimes it's the simplest explanation that's the best one. Since you mentioned NVIDIA, I think that's really worth pointing out, not because of the importance in terms of the company, importance in terms of market sentiment, Dan, and we talk about this all the time. NVIDIA was one of the many poster children for this high growth, high valuation stock market, which NVIDIA specifically topped out around $347, I think late last year, November of memory serves, please don't at me if I'm wrong. They reported earnings earlier this week. We had talked about it leading up to earnings. I will tell you, Dan, that fourth quarter release I thought was excellent. As a matter of fact, not only was the quarter excellent, I thought the first quarter guide was as well. Street was looking for about $7.3 billion in revenues. They guided to $8.1 billion. Given the sell-off the stock had seen from that 346 level-ish, to me, it stood to reason that maybe you set up pretty well. We actually had a conversation about that. Turns out, not so well. Why? Because if you pointed out a number of times, this is still a company with now a market cap of $600 billion with a B, is trading north of 20 times revenue. And I listened to OK Computer the same way Danny did, and Rick Heitzman came on and talked about normal valuations in terms of price to revenues is somewhere closer to 10. NVIDIA is twice that. Here's the big kicker. That's for SaaS, for these enterprise SaaS companies that have gross margins north of 80%. So this is a company that obviously they're doing more and more on the software front, but this is a semiconductor company with margins in the mid 60s. And I'll just say this, that price to sales is below 20 now. It's about 18. And I guess the issue that I have here, and this is not on the company guy, you just laid it out. They guided up for the current quarter about 10% on revenues, and the stock's down 7%. The biggest takeaway right here, right now, is that this is a great company with great products that are taking market share, that have a massive addressable market and a number of the buzziest things, and they are the largest semiconductor company by market cap ever. But the problem is that investors took it too far. So why is the stock down $100 from $346 to $246 over the last three months since making an all-time high? Because we're seeing value compression all over the place, and it's only down 17% of the year. This stock could be at $200 in a heartbeat, having nothing to do with the great fundamentals here. And I'll just say this, great company, great news, bad price action, bad market, you're seeing lower lows in this thing. 
I've said this for the last several months or since the year started. You got to get rid of October, November, December performance and all these tech stocks for the most part. I think this run up in Q4. And if you look at a lot of these companies and just put your finger over the chart, what Q4 was, this actually thing is almost on trend line. If you were to actually take that off and listen, I'm not long in video. I'm not short. I think they're in great markets. I think they're a well-run company. They've had to now deal with walking away from the arm transaction and what that potentially means. Now they're licensing it versus buying it. People probably believe they're going to go to try to buy something else. I don't think it's a great short here, but again, on valuation, you're never going to get there. Now, three years out, four years out, you can work your way maybe into that valuation. So I wouldn't be anywhere on this thing. It looks to me to be as Carter worth, would say a pair of twos from here, but you're right. If I had to pick a direction, it would probably be lower. Not to drill down specifically on names and not to cast aspersions, as they say, but this is just an interesting thing. We talk about stairs up, elevator down. If you want to see something in real life, stairs up, elevator down, I give you the following. In April of 2020, Shopify was a $685 stock. It took it 18 months to get to its all-time high of 1762 made in November of last year. Since that time, since November, which last I looked is only about three or so months away, the stock has gone from 1760 back to that 680 level, which is astonishing when you think about it. And Dan Nathan, this is something you've talked about now for a while as well. I bumped into a friend of mine in LA who's a VC and is a brilliant private market investor. He invests in SaaS companies and literally he saw me coming and he's like, all right, get away, get away. Every time you go on CNBC, my portfolio of stocks that they've exited to the public markets, they go lower. I have a lot of friends in the VC space and they're brilliant identifiers of new trends, of really innovative founders and that sort of thing. But they have this huge disconnect between what they think they know about valuations and how they can bubble up in private markets and how these stocks or these companies are treated by the public market investors. And we've been saying this and maybe people thought we were screaming into the ether about this, but what was going on in the latter part of 2020 into 2020? in a lot of these really high valuation tech names that saw their businesses massively accelerated by the pandemic and the lockdowns, it was just very obvious to us. And we just spent some time before we started recording this, listening to Kathy Wood, who runs the ARC Innovation ETF. She was on Scott Wapner's halftime report. And it was really interesting to me because I just don't understand how she doesn't understand that you can be an amazingly innovative and disruptive company, but it doesn't have to be reflected in your stock price. Yeah, I want to talk about that interview. That was on my list of things to talk about. And again, if you look at her returns over the last eight years or so, astonishing is the word I would use. But I will say, as we've pointed out a number of times, the last seven or eight months have been difficult. And I think as we sit here now, the peak to trough decline, and Dan, you probably know this better than I do, in terms of the ARC ETF is over 60% now, which again, is an astonishing thing owning up to it and saying, you know what? Yes, clearly my timing was bad in many of these names. That's just fact because say what you want, as I say, and I know this makes Dan crazy, but price is in fact truth. So it was truth on the upside. Well, it's got to be now truth on the downside. And that interview she did with Scott Wapner on the halftime report on Thursday, you should all go back and listen to. So many of those names are broken. And in my world, to think they could get back to anything remotely close to those levels, I think is foolhardy, Danny Moses. I agree. Whenever the market's down like this, I wait. Here she comes. She's trying to justify her business model and her plans, but she's making comments that actually don't make sense. She's not the one that decides the flows that come into her business, but she is the one that decides when those flows do come in and out, what to do with them. 
And she has so many positions that are off kilter in terms of owning huge amounts of small cap companies because she has to, because she can't sell them now. She's trapped right now. And I think people look at that and smell it. Don't worry about shorting her universe. Look at the names that are in her universe because you want me to be constructive? Our producer tells us all the time, let's be positive and constructive. Okay, the baby's going out with the bathwater on some of these smaller names, and she probably does own some names that don't deserve to be where they are. So use that as a tool and look and see what the makeup of her portfolio is. Yeah, but those names are not going to stop going down if the broad market catches up to what's going on there. And that's the lesson. I heard her say, well, I was in the tech bubble as it inflated in the late 90s and then how it popped in the early 2000s. And we all had a front row seat for this and we were all actively trading. No one knew in 2000 that it was over, that we're going to go into a protracted bear market. But let me tell you this, in 01, you most certainly did. And in 02, you had no idea when it was going to end. That was the worst feeling year. So the idea that her top 10 holdings, let's say X Tesla, are all down 50 percent plus and tesla is likely to be down 50 percent from its highs at some point in the not so distant future it may take years for them to come back and just go look at the nasdaq how long it took to get back to just a reasonable level after it already crashed off the 2000 highs took years i think it was 2004 or 5 to get back to some sort of level that made some sense listen you have hybrids of these passive active passive we've talked about this ad nauseum it's your friend when flows are going one way. It's not your friend. Going through. A lot of these models haven't even been tested. And yes, she's an active manager of an ETF, but she's still subjected to flows that she can't control. Yes, it should be directly tied to her performance, but it doesn't have to be. Flows can start coming out of those names anyway. What I'm saying is look at the companies individually. And yes, when we start hearing about massive volume trading in small names, when I used to sit on the trading desk, those are huge opportunities when you see Huge trades go up and big blocks of stock go up and then you see a cleanup. I'm just saying, keep your eyes open. That's all I'm saying. Let me ask you guys a question here. So I'm looking at this on my facts. I think it says she's got $12 billion in assets under management and that's across lots of different funds. I'm sure ARK is one of the biggest ones. Why does she have an actively managed ETF that can only charge, I don't even know what her fees are, but they're tiny. Why doesn't she have a large multi-strat fund where every major hedge fund, manager that we know, Ackman and Einhorn and even Paulson and Griffin, they all had massive drawdowns at periods over the last 10 years from peak assets, and they're still here to talk about it. And those guys are all billionaires. So why does she have this fund where every morning you wake up and Twitter's down 10% after their earnings, and the headline is, Kathy Wood's ARC sells $3 million worth of Twitter? It seems ludicrous to me. Because her only hedge is cash. She has no shorts. All those people you just named had the ability to have other portfolios and create short positions and to be objective about the market. You're much more objective when you have a balanced portfolio. You see shorts working at the same time. Longs aren't. Changes your whole mindset. It allows you to balance your portfolio. She doesn't have that. I can't speak for Kathy Wood, but in retrospect, Dan, to your point, the vehicle she chose, in my opinion, was wrong. And we have said that on numerous occasions that having an ETF was the wrong thing. Why? Because you do have a bullseye on your back when you're a hedge fund without question. But in the world of ETFs, you have a giant bullseye on your back in the form of exactly that. Redemptions as stocks go lower. You don't necessarily want to sell. You have no choice but to sell. Now, the folks at home can't see this, so I probably shouldn't do it. But right now, Danny Moses looks like he has a beautiful Rothko painting behind him, and he has this open-air terrace behind him, which leads me to believe he's in Florida. I guarantee you, once he gets done doing this, he's probably going to go to a number of different places. 
I would imagine, though, the racetrack is one of them. Am I right? Yes or no, Danny Moses? Not today. No racetrack today. Not today. Fair enough. But I will tell you, you know this. In 1978, in my opinion, so I was probably 14 years old at the time, one of the great triple crown races, though in terms of Kentucky Derby, Preakness, and the Belmont, was fought between two horses that if they race in different years would be in the Horse Racing Hall of Fame if they're not there already. One of them is the great Alidar, which lost to the great Affirmed. Now, I'm stretching it a bit here, but this has been on top of mind for you in a while in terms of Affirm. And I will tell you, the interview they did with Deirdre Bose the other day, in my opinion, was a train wreck. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon you just played. You took me to the racetrack, back to the Horse Affirm. That was fantastic. So I actually found a Wikipedia page called PayPal Mafia. It's like a group of people that helped start PayPal and Elon Musk is in there. There's a lot of similarities. While I'm talking here, go look at that page. You're going to see a lot of companies like Palantir, which have gotten drilled here recently. So we've been saying this all along, late last year. We talked about it last summer. So Hill Bloom came on. We were talking about buy now, pay later, and what this, what this would become. And I kept harping on the fact that these are not technology companies. These are specialty finance companies. We saw this years ago when Lending Club came out and went public. They didn't reinvent the wheel. They reinvented the way that the wheel is built. They reinvented the way to, to get people together that can lend and not worry about FICO scores and so forth. So Max Lefkin, brilliant guy, obviously, came on. They released earnings by accident, supposedly, on Twitter a couple hours early last Thursday. I believe they thought the stock was going to trade up because they had better than expected revenue, but their losses were worse. And their losses were worse also because they have to start reserving now for credit deterioration in their pool. So here's what happened. The stock comes and goes to 85 during the course of the day, I think. I don't have the chart up in front of me. Proceeds to trade down to, let's call it mid-50s. As we see it here now, it's under 40. Why do I think it's stuck down here and probably going to move lower? Because of the comments that Lefkin made to Deirdre Bosa on her show. Quote, commitment to putting people first over the past 12 months. We added nearly 7 million active users. Putting people first, great. Giving people the opportunity. That was actually, I think, on their conference call, not necessarily on her show. But their mission is to improve lives and to do so, this is the best, while delighting the people we get to serve every day. You know why they're delighted? Because they're not paying the loans back. They basically just got these loans. and That's why they're absolutely delighted. So what happens after that? I keep telling people to listen. Read your 10 Qs and Ks. I say that all the time. Their 10 Q came out on the 14th. What happened on the 14th? People actually got to see the data on their delinquencies. They are very elevated and they're growing. 30-day bucket, 60-day bucket, 90-day bucket. What does that mean? It means that what people will pay for those loans is going to go down because they're not as valuable as they were if they're going to start to default. And their costs to originate are probably going to go up. And guess what? The Fed hasn't started raising rates yet. So what happens when cost of capital? So that model is very vulnerable. It's had its run, but you can't outgrow loan deterioration. Vinny always said, if you grow your loan book faster than GDP, you're in trouble at some point. You have to reconcile that because you cannot commoditize lending. So anyway, keep an eye on a firm. And then the other name, which is a platform name, Upstart, UPST. They did a great job of destroying shorts the other day with this $400 million buyback. And Dan, to your point on Twitter, it's not a company you want to see necessarily buying back stock. First of all, where this thing trades really makes no sense, certainly when the CEO is basically selling his shares to the company buyback. But they came out, they crushed numbers. But you know what? They're not making as much money as they had in the past. But what people are now excited about is they're getting into auto and they're going to get into mortgage. They didn't reinvent anything. So keep an eye on this. What's really interesting is Upstart uses banks. Now I'm going to lose everybody. They use banks basically to offload their loans, so to speak. So you can look at names like FINW. Chart looks good, right? CCB looks good. WSFS. Those are the banks behind these platform lenders. So they basically take the risk on. But the minute that those banks see deterioration in credit, guess what? 
They're not paying what they were for those loans. I don't care what platform. So buyer beware, keep an eye. I think Upstart had gone down from 400 to 95. It was prone for obviously a short squeeze and it got hit a little bit on the affirm from last week. So it was set up that way. And the CEO and the management did a great job on squeezing people. So it's one of those things where now you're going to have to wait, but I would not be buying Upstart here. So I think Affirm's going to continue its trend. And again, people just need to know what they own. The charts out there are just disastrous of all these, what I think are consumer names, everyday names. We're using their products. We're using their services. They probably became hot in the stock market because these companies got good at getting in the meme game and everything like that. But there's lots of gaps. There's lots of round trips ready to happen. That Affirm chart, Danny, that thing goes down 10% a day. This is really reminiscent to me though. And I just mentioned that period in 2001 where the news just kept on getting worse and worse. And it was one step forward, two steps back. It'll be really interesting to see how quickly Upstart retraces this entire move of this week. Because at one point it was up 40%, gave a lot of it back. Guy, I don't know if you mentioned on the pod, but we just talked about DoorDash. They had this squeezy thing that was trading at all-time lows prior to their report. Who knows how good that is? If you have a DoorDash account, you know how promotional it is. I literally have these delivery apps sending me emails every day. Hey, come back. You've earned a $10 perk. Things have gotten out of control, and I suspect we're going to see that from Uber and Lyft sometime soon too. Lest you think we're all fire and brimstone, when we come back, we're going to find out some names that we like. And believe it or not, we've gone 45 minutes without Danny waxing poetic on Tesla. We'll have that as well right after this. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. As I mentioned, 45 minutes in, and Danny hasn't waxed poetic about Tesla. I bring that up not to harp on Tesla, but Tesla's been in the news the last couple weeks, in my opinion, for all the wrong reasons. And look, the stock's been hanging in here, but this $900 level's been a bit of a pivot point, and now we seem to be through it, Danny Moses. Elon Musk making headlines once again. I try to focus on balance sheet and business first and what he does second, although it's hard to separate the two, but when there's no one telling him what he can and can't do since he basically runs the company. There is no board. They do whatever he wants to. You got to take both in stride. But here's two things that happened today. One is Consumer Report. So it's Dan's car. The Ford Mustang Mach-E is the top 2022 EV pick replacing Model 3. Okay, whatever. I would short stock on that per se, but it is just another element that there is a lot of competition out there. If you watch the Super Bowl ads, you saw that. And again, U.S. Auto Safety Agency opens preliminary investigation into 416,000 Tesla vehicles after reports of unexpected activation of braking system. That's something that can actually kill you. And so every time he gets kind of nervous or gets put into a hole, he'll lash out. And I think Dan may have some comments on the lashing out, but the whole hypocrisy that it's an ESG company. Okay, I get the E maybe. I could argue that it doesn't do a ton for it, but I'll give you the E. 
But the social aspect and the governance aspect, I mean, these claims of racism, which seem to be pretty true since it's not one person, it's not funny. It's crazy, but everyone just gives this guy a pass. Are they scared to challenge him? What are people afraid of? If that was the CEO of any other company, can you imagine if you had a real board of directors, what they would do? They would put out statements. We're taking this seriously. We're investigating all these matters. They don't do that. Why? Because fear of him? Fear of him. Danny, the guy sold $15 billion of stock at the absolute high in Tesla. The stock, remember, in October took off. It passed 800 bucks and then went straight to 900 in a matter of weeks. And then it broke out to a new all-time high and topped out weeks later at 1250 or something. And he starts selling stock. If you had a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders to make sure that this company, that literally he had handshake deals on numerous occasions over the last 10 years or so to sell the company because they couldn't make payroll. Shouldn't that company have been raising capital? Yet he is selling billions and billions of dollars worth of stock front running the company. That's crazy to me. The other thing that you just mentioned here, the Wall Street Journal, there was an article this morning that Tesla lawyers are complaining to federal judges that the SEC is harassing Elon. Here's a guy who, for all intents and purposes, like you just said, If any other Fortune 100 CEO conducted themselves the way that he did, they'd be out. They'd just be gone. And then last thing, this is the thing that just bugs the shit out of me, to be really frank. Because to your point, Danny, nobody challenges this guy. There was a tweet by Coindesk. Canadian authorities have ordered financial institutions not interact with 34 different crypto addresses tied to the country's ongoing trucker protest. Okay, that's fine. You could take issue with that. Maybe they're getting a little George Orwellian there or whatever. Elon Musk tweets in response to that a meme with Hitler saying, stop comparing me to Justin Trudeau. I had a budget. Let me just tell you fucking this. When you were tweeting memes of Hitler. You're not winning here. And I just don't get it. I think the guy should be called out for it. And you know what, Elon? GFY, buddy. a boy, Dan. I may give you all your 15000 back. Ah, uh, there you go. I feel like solidarity with you right now. Here's the thing. I agree with all of that. And you know how I feel about the company. It doesn't trade on valuation. It just doesn't. It trades on this belief in him and whatever that value may be ascribed to. That's why when it does start to sell off, and it will, there really is no bottom. Once it loses its momentum, you guys just mentioned four or five stocks which have lost its momentum and they're headed down the drain, so to speak. This will be one of them. And what will happen will be as soon as the stock goes down, people look for things to blame. They'll come out, Elon, how could you have done that with the SEC? We all know how this game works. But until then, he's paying a lot of bankers a lot of fees. We totally understand that. And he's got people like Larry Ellison and other people who have staying backing him. I didn't see Larry Ellison come out and denounce anything that Musk has done. But anyway, I could go on and on. But let's move on, guy, to other names here. I want to be constructive. No, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. So I want to be constructive as well. And there have been things that we've talked about. For example, look at some of these defense stocks, very quietly a name like Raytheon, which has round tripped from January of last year. It was a $96 stock, symbol RTX, went from 96, an all-time high, down to 55. Well, here we are again at 96. Now, Dan Nathan would correctly said, bit of a double top here. I'd be concerned. I agree, but it's something to watch. I will tell you, though, that Lockheed Martin, LMT, very quietly making this move from about 325 to 390 at 13 times next year's earnings in this environment, given all the things now we're concerned about, on top of which valuation is compelling. That's a name that I continue to like. I think that continues to trade higher. And I'll mention quickly, Gold stocks on fire. American Barracks, Barrack Gold now, symbol gold, G-O-L-D. Look at the move that company's had over the last week and a half, two weeks, 
with gold moving, but in no way into the stratosphere. Gold is still, and to me, early innings of the move. I think gold, the stock, is something to watch here. And Newmont Mining, another mining stock, has done extraordinarily well. And then throw in, just for good measure, Alcoa, which we've talked about seemingly for the last year or so. These infrastructure names, again, I understand the environment that we find ourselves in, but they will continue to work. So if you're looking for names for G-Swizzle, you got some. Danny Moses, I think Walmart's on your radar screen. God, I was looking at that chart of Alcoa. You've had a nice call in Lockheed Martin, obviously. Geopolitical problems, check. High dividend yield, check. Cheap stock, check. Executing, check. So I think that's probably a good name to have in the portfolio. Walmart, listen, Walmart's down on the year. Coming into this year was certainly one of my top picks, and I still feel that way. I don't think it's sexy, and I think that basically is how this market is. Stay away from the sexy stuff and go to the value stuff, and then you won't get hurt as bad. But let me just say the quarter was better than expected. Quarterly dividend from $0.55 to $0.56, and the comp sales were up 6.3%. But here's what's really interesting. Their Spark Driver platform, what is that? It's their gig worker platform, their ability to deliver, to go around DoorDash, can now serve 55% of all households. They've quietly built these things up. I keep telling you guys about their e-commerce initiative and what's happening. Their delivery service is up six times compared to pre-pandemic. But here's the best part. Their inventory is up 28.3%. Why? They're trying to control their own destiny as it relates to the supply chain. And their grocery business is kicking up higher, and they have lower prices for groceries. So they're not losing their consumer. If anything, if the economy starts to struggle, they'll gain consumers that will effectively trade down to their product. So I continue to like Walmart. I think it's safe. They announced another buyback, I believe, here too as well. Not a small company. It takes a lot to move the needle, but a $10 billion buyback. This is a real solid company. So I don't know what's sitting here at 135 $136 bucks a share here, I think. I think your call on the logistics investments that they're making make a lot of sense. And their ability to have this vaccinated supply chain during the pandemic and the investments that they've made, I think they'll definitely pay off. I'll just say this. The stock is up today. It acts very poorly, though, in general. Broken that uptrend that's been in place for the last few years. It's made a series of lower highs over just the last six or so months. Hasn't made a new all-time high, I think, since late 2020. So you're not hard selling this one. I think I even heard you say you'll get hurt less bad in this one. So might it be defensive? Yeah, but it just feels like there's going to be a point in time and maybe mid to late 2022 where some analysts start to say this should be revalued based on those investments and their ability to better compete with some of these last mile delivery guys. That makes sense. If your tagline is you'll get hurt less bad trying to be constructive, Danny, I think you're properly bearish. Dan, I'd smell a bet here, though. No, no, I'm done. You're done with me? Okay. I don't think that chart's terrible, by the way. We can talk about it on another show, but it looks like a pair of twos to me. But anyway, Guy. Before we get to Dan, I think you're right to point out merchandise inventories, which I'm looking at, were $56 billion, which were up 25.7% year over year. Now, for some companies, that could be catastrophic because if you don't have the commensurate sales growth behind it, you're going to get crushed on margins, operating margins going forward. In the case of Walmart, Danny, I think it's the exact opposite. Now, operating margins came in a little bit better than expected. Not great, but I think it sets them up for a tremendous quarter going forward. I should have mentioned, so their supply chain costs, whole idea of getting all that inventory was 400 million more than expected. And I think that's why people were somewhat nervous. Their COVID costs, though, are dropping now. To Dan's point about the economy reopening, Walmart's a great indicator across the country for people's view. They dropped their mask mandate, things that are happening. So I think they're important as a barometer, and I think it's important to understand what they're doing and what they're saying, regardless if you're going to invest in the company or not, because I think it can tell you a lot about the U.S. consumer. 
Fair enough. Let's talk about the Chinese consumer here. And we know the Chinese economy had been slowing a little bit. The country had started to initiate some moves to ease monetary policy a little bit over the last couple of months. We've spent some time talking about Alibaba. This is a stock that's down 60-some percent from the time where Chairman Jack Ma disappeared in late 2020. It's been a series of lower highs and lower lows. looks like it's trying to put a bottom in here, and it feels like the rhetoric around China, especially into the Olympics, I know that this situation with Taiwan, it might heat up, as you're saying, Guy. But this one looks really interesting to me. In November, there was a gap lower on earnings below, I think the stock was trading like one 80 or so gap below 150 and the stock here at 126 really looks like it's trying to put a little bit of a base in here and the slightest bit of good news i think you have this stock back at 150 maybe filling in that gap up towards 165 or something like that so to me i feel like i almost want to look overseas in some of these areas where the sentiment is just so bad and it was Halloween, I believe, of 2020 when the stock was, I want to say, 310 or so that it topped out. That's when Jack Ma disappeared. And to your point, there have been a series of lower highs and lower lows until recently. Go back and look at that recent low. I believe it was 108.70, late December, early January. We haven't challenged it again. And what's interesting here at 126 or so That pattern is about to be broken. So I'm with you on the risk-reward basis. I think Alibaba sets up really well, Dan, Nathan. Well, here's one guy. We were just talking about options action. I did that show on CNBC for 10 years. If I was looking at this and I wanted to put a flyer out there, I'd look out a few months, maybe the May 150 calls. Stock right now is about 126. And I know that's a big break-even to the upside, but those cost about five bucks. That might be one way that if you ever had an explosive rally, people piling back into this name, then you're there for that gap fill. You have a few months to have that thing play out. So that could be an interesting way to play it. Things have never been the same in Alibaba since the Ant Group issue when Chi went after that and scuttled the whole IPO, right? That's when things started to really take a downturn, if I'm not mistaken, Dan. And Guy just highlighted that the stock price right before that had hit, I think, an all-time high. There's not a better e-commerce setup than they have. They are the prototype for how e-commerce companies should run. It is the best platform in the world. You ask anyone, that they truly believe that. And their ability to come over here at some point is a potential massive upside from that model's trying to get replicated anyway here. But Dan, what I don't know is, and you're probably right, I don't know what the issue is with the listings now and VIEs and all this other stuff. I think people just got tired of trying to figure out, it's hard enough to figure out company fundamentals for various companies. It's a whole nother to try to play this political game. That doesn't mean there's not an opportunity on the long side. And I don't disagree with you. And I think once the Olympics end, if things in Taiwan don't heat up over a period of time, it probably is a buy here because no one's there. I think people have really sold this and left it for dead. Before we scuttle the pod, by the way, scuttle is a great word that we should use more often. Monday is a holiday. Weird things happen over long weekends. Just keep that in consideration, folks. Danny, before we get out of here, let me ask you this question because you appear to be down in Florida where historically spring training takes place. Ain't no spring training now. Yes or no, binary, no bullshit answer. Will Major League Baseball be played in 2022? I want to believe yes, but every time the Mets have a great setup and a great roster, something tends to happen. Maybe this is the thing that happens. So I don't know, but you're right. Pitchers haven't reported. No one's reported. (laughs) No one's down here yet. By the way, I'm not going to be with you guys next week. I will be unavailable next week. But I want to say one more thing just to say it, even though this is completely now out of context. Turkey just sold $3 billion worth of dollar-denominated bonds at 7.5%, up from 5% last summer. I just wanted to throw it out there to let you know of the risks that are starting to play into the global system. You can cut that part if you want, I don't know, but I wanted to end with that in case 
something happens while I'm gone in the next two weeks. This is a first in the history of podcasts, which there are many. No podcast in the history of mankind is ended on Turkish bond sales, but we're going to do exactly that. Thanks, folks. We'll see you next week. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.